You're listening to East Ridge Review's Poetry Podcast with me, your host, A.R. Williams, editor of East Ridge Review. This program provides listeners with an opportunity to delve into the world of poetry, gaining insight into the creative process, inspiration, and themes explored by each featured poet. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk with Kip Knott. Kip is a writer, a teacher, photographer, and part-time art dealer living in Delaware, Ohio. He's the author of three full-length collections of poetry, the most recent being The Other Side of Who I Am, available from Kelsey Books. He's also the author of nine poetry chapbooks, the newest being The Misanthrope in Moonlight from Bottle Cap Press. A new poetry chapbook, Little Hiroshima's, is due out from Finishing Line Press in 2024. In addition to hearing a little bit about how Kip became a writer, some of his influences, and some of the ways that he finds inspiration in writing, Kip and I both have chapbooks that recently have come out, and we have the opportunity of both sharing a little bit about how those chapbooks are organized, and both are reading a poem on today's podcast. So really excited about this episode and looking forward to sharing it with you. Well, Kip, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's exciting to talk about poetry. I'll tell you, I don't get to do it a lot anymore. Uh, so it's fun. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to have you on. And, um, you know, first, I'd like to just talk a little bit about uh, your journey into poetry. Um, you know, I, I think that's always interesting getting kind of into the history of how someone stumbles into it. So tell us a little bit about how you got into poetry. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's really kind of a, a sad way of getting in. Um, I I never grew up thinking I was going to be a writer or anything like that. Um, uh, when I was an undergrad at Ohio State, um, I had five majors in five years. I couldn't figure out what the heck I wanted to do. <laughs> um, I, I started out at natural resources. I mean, my dream as a kid was um, when I got old enough, I was going to drive my car out west, abandon the car, go into the mountains and become a mountain man. Um, that that was my dream all along. So I went into natural resources so I could learn everything I needed to learn about <clears throat> the wilderness. And then the science just was, well, it was the math part of the science proved too much. So I changed my major and I think I went into archaeology, then anthropology, then journalism. And then eventually I just wanted to get the hell out of college. I, I mean, I'd been there for five years. <laughs> so I, I looked to see what I had the most uh, credits in and it was English, for, uh, which surprised me. I hadn't realized I had taken that many English classes. And then I started thinking, why did I take so many English classes? And it was almost always to follow a woman I was interested in into, <laughs> into a class. And that's what got me into poetry. I had, I had taken the first ever creative writing workshop I ever took was, uh, was a short story class uh, to follow a girl into a short story class. And when that didn't pan out, there was, I, I met another, a uh, woman in the class who was more into poetry. So she took a poetry class. So I went into that poem <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea what a poem was. I, I 
didn't have a clue. And so the first assignment was we just, we had to write a poem where we described an inanimate object. That, that was the assignment. So <laughs> I'm like, well, uh, what can I write about? And I, I grew up spending a lot of time with my grandparents um, in, in the Appalachian part of Ohio. I would live with them during the summers. And my grandfather was a, he, he was a coal miner and then he became a farmer. And I remember he had this garden hoe that he used and it was the only one he ever used and it was worn down to the quick. I mean, there was hardly any blade left on it at all, but he would never buy a new one. So I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a poem that described it and the poem was called, and it sounds completely ridiculous. And I didn't even think about it at the time. It was called Reclining Hoe. <laughs> 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 and so I wrote this poem and I, and I, I turned it in and, um, the poems were workshopped uh, anonymously, and mine was the first one that was workshopped that quarter. And the teacher had a reputation of being a real hard ass. I mean, he was supposed to be just very cruel, and so yeah. I was scared to death. So before we they launched into talking about the poem, he said, "I just want to want to stop, and I want to." He's like, he said, "I've never done this before." but I'm going to ask who wrote this poem. And I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> so I, I kind of raised my hand and, and he said, well, I would just like to say this is a remarkable poem to start a class like this with. And then he went on for about 10 minutes singing the praises of this poem, which I couldn't understand it. I was just describing the hope. Um, <laughs> That's and, a poet's dream right there. Yeah I, yeah, I know. I know. So I thought, wow. You know, wow, maybe this, you know, I kind of forgot the girl I was after in that moment and was really interested in, wow, I did something good. And then at the end of the semester, you would go in and the teacher would ask, what grade do you think you deserve for the class? And I went in and I said, well, I think I deserve an A for that first poem. And He's like, no. He's like, yeah, that poem was really good. Everything else you wrote was shit. <laughs> <laughs> and... I'm like, oh, no, but that put a chip on my shoulder. And so I kept enrolling in poetry classes because I wanted to get him to tell me again I had written a good poem. That was mm -hmm. like my whole, my whole reasoning. And eventually I was, I was the um, first undergraduate student ever allowed to take graduate level writing workshops at Ohio State. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was, just a real challenge. I felt I and and it took two years before he finally admitted I had written another good poem. So that's that's what got <laughs> a weird way to get into poetry. And I was I was in my early twenties at that point because that was towards the end of my college career. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't start writing poetry until my early twenties. Yeah, well, that's a great story. I mean, you know, there's. Chasing women will get us in a lot of different things, but that's that's one thing that it seemed like it actually was beneficial for you. So that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it, there was a marriage in there uh, that didn't work out, but you know that was sort of the uh, aftermath. <laughs> sure, sure. But the sure. poetry, the poetry stuck. So yes. that's good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's 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 really that's really great. I mean, I similarly I. You know, I loved writing. I was a kind of a creative person um, when I was a kid, but I and I but I got myself into academic writing, which is very different. 
um, yeah. and kind of fell into poetry later um, after, you know, I had already studied lots of different things and just fell in love. And I think it's it can be one of those things that just really um, sticks on you, um, especially after you you write something that is actually worth reading again. Um, and so, well, that was that was the thing that that I had written a poem that, you know, not not knowing at all, you know, what I was supposed to do. I, I knew the only thing I knew was that contemporary poetry didn't necessarily rhyme and that, that it wasn't. A, mm-hmm. So I made sure not to rhyme. <laughs> that yes. was it. That was all I knew. And so I just, it made me think, wow, you know, I did something well, at least according to, you know, um, an expert. Um, I had done something well once. Could I do it again? And mm. and so it was a challenge. And a lot of, a lot of the students in that class, when he would go off, which he always did. He would go off on students for one reason or another. <laughs> they would wilt and they would, you know, they would never take another class again. But for me, I just, I took it as a challenge. And I, mm. just, I it was like, I'm going to make him tell me I wrote another good poem. Um, and I mean, I learned probably more from taking classes with him. Um, I, I went on and got a master's degree in, in poetry at uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks. And then I did everything but dissertate for a PhD in poetry at Oklahoma State. But I learned more in those classes that I took as an undergrad at Ohio State probably than any any other place. Wow. That's amazing. Well that's that's really, really interesting. Um, you know, along with kind of that the formative stage, what you said that you love um you loved you want to be a mountain man. And you loved outdoors yeah. in the wilderness. Yeah. And I can see, yeah. I can see how that seems to be something that you're still drawn to in some of your poetry. Uh, what what kind of themes and um, subjects do you usually find yourself writing about? I mean, definitely it's, it's um, sort of our relationship with our environment, um, whether it's uh, an urban environment, um, suburban environment, or a natural environment. That's, it place, I think, plays a big part in a lot of my writing. Um, the, the, the fact that I'm, um, from this Appalachian part of Ohio, it, it plays a huge role. I mean, especially in, in my early stuff, um, and then in my second full length book, um, that, that, that this area of Ohio, um, the coal mining area, um, and it really plays a part in my poetry because I mean, and a lot of that has to do with my grandparents. That that's probably where I learned the second most about writing was from my grandparents. They weren't writers at all, but they were storytellers. And mm. so when I would have dinner with them every night, I mean, I just heard stories. I heard stories about my grandfather working in the coal mines. I heard stories about my grandmother working in a shoe factory. And then she, when she retired, she became a bartender um, at this miners bar in in a very rural little town in Ohio, and I, I spent a lot of time behind the bar as a kid uh, washing <laughs> dishes. Um, so yeah, just hearing their story. So there's there's um, as much as I probably feel like I'm I'm more of an imagist writer. I, I write lyric poetry primarily. Um, there's still a strong narrative thread. In, in my stuff, um, even the some of the really short micro poems I write kind of have this 
sort of narrative. It's a, it's a very quick hitting narrative, but, um, and that's sort of the way when I put together books, I, I, I think of books of poetry as almost as novels. I, um, I have a character usually from beginning to end and there's a, there's an arc, um, in, in the book, um, that takes the character from point A to point B and then with little deviations here and there. Um, somewhere in the middle, but that, that's sort of my approach. To, and, and I think that's the storytelling quality that I learned from my grandparents. Um, but other themes, I, I, I really got into, um, probably too much, um, the, the theme of grief. And that, that was during the pandemic when so many people had to deal with death in a way that in this country, we probably hadn't had to deal with something like that since the first half of the 20th century yeah. and the, the relationship with death became very, very different in this country during the pandemic. So I, I really was interested in grief and the grieving process. And a lot of the stuff I wrote during that time um, dealt with grief and, and I'm still sort of coming out of that now. Um, so those, you know, the, the natural world, the relationship that we have between um, the environment um, grief. Um, some some people say I I, um, I might do a little too much navel gazing in my poetry, which is debatable because I don't I don't think of my poems as autobiographical. I take elements uh, from my life, but they're always kind of filtered through a character. It's a character that I have in mind. And and I think that's one reason I, I, I write a lot of ekphrastic poetry too. So artwork is is something that's really important in my writing, and that's that's another way for me to kind of inhabit a character. Because um, a lot of times uh, when I write ekphrastic poetry, I'm not just describing the art. I'm trying to get into the mind of the artist. Um, and uh, I, I wrote a a series of. Uh, uh, poems about Andrew Wyeth's Helga paintings, um, and I, they're all written. They're they're all persona poems written in Wyeth voice, um, except for the last poem in that collection, which is it, it's a found poem, and it was it's all quotes taken directly from Helga mm. from a very short documentary that somebody did on her. And, and it sort of, I wanted to give her the last word because I was writing and hit, you know, from the artist's perspective all throughout. And then I wanted to kind of switch it and give her the last word. Um, so I like doing a lot of stuff like that. I, I like sort of donning a mask, whether it's a character that I create and pull in elements of my life or elements of the lives of people around me. Or if I take, um, take on the voice of an artist and, and try and get into their head about their creative process. Um, that that I have a lot of fun doing that, and I tend to write a lot of ekphrastic poetry. If I I feel like I'm have a bit of writer's block, that's when I'll start going through and looking at um, you know museums online uh, paintings. I've got tons of books of paintings, um, and and um, that that kind of will spark something in me. Mm. That's that's really interesting. You know, talking about that creative process, and I guess we could start with the Fraxtic, uh poetry because uh, I've read a, a good amount of yours and I really enjoy them. And I also enjoy your your um, 
your micro poems, your lyrical kind of imagist poetry. When you're talking about your creative process, um, I know this is, I, I know sometimes it can be hard to kind of boil down your your creative process in terms of, because it can vary. But when you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to sit down to write poetry. What does it look like for you? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not one of those writers who says, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to write every day for two hours or, you know, uh, William Stafford, I think he used to get up at four in the morning, every morning. I mean, and he did this religiously. Um, so he, he would get up at like four and he would write from four to six. That was his time. His wife was still asleep. Um, and he would every day he would write what and, and he kept everything he wrote and he never threw anything away. And he would write for two hours every day. I, I know I can't, I tried it because <laughs> I love Stafford's <laughs> poetry and I, I actually worked. I had, I had a great chance to work with Stafford. He came oh, to Ohio did you? State when I was, oh yeah, he was amazing. Oh, he's Absolutely one of my, amazing. he's one of my favorite poets. Oh my God. He's incredible. I, um, a friend of mine and I, we started a literary magazine back in the, uh, eighties, mid eighties, uh, called the And Review. And we, we were both really influenced by the deep images poets. And so that was sort of the, the focus of the magazine, but we had this feature. We came up with this feature where we would get a poet to review his or her own book. So they would, they would write, and, and the results were just really interesting from poet to poet. Um, but Stafford was the first person we asked to do this, and he oh, wow. did it absolutely tongue-in-cheek, and it was great. <laughs> it was fantastic. But he gave us what Stafford does or used to, well, did when he would teach a writing workshop. He had a writing wall. And so he would come in every day. I think he was at Ohio State for two or three weeks and, and had a special class with him. So every day he would come in and he would tack a new poem that he had written up on the board. And then he invited all of us to do that. And they weren't poems to be workshopped. They were just poems to share. And so I've got two original Stafford poems that he typed and hand corrected uh, that we published in the interview. I've got the, I've got the poem, the, the copies oh that my he goodness. pinned on the wall. Um, one is, is a poem that's been anthologized. It's called some words in place of a wailing wall. It's a fantastic poem. Mm. Um, but he, yeah, he was, he was absolutely amazing. So I tried to do what he did. I, I couldn't do it. For me, I, I ha it has, something has to spark the desire to write. I, I just can't, I, I, ca I can, I can, you know, there was a contest that I just entered that was, uh, I think it was back in September. Uh, um, and I can't even remember, it's, it's some library in Michigan has this contest where you had to, you had two days where you had to write poems um, and you could submit um, a manuscript of 15 to, I think it was 40 pages of poetry, but all the poems had to be written from like September 2nd to September 4th. Oh, wow. So I, di I, I did that. Um, and that was really difficult to do, to just, try and crank out poems in that amount of time because it, then it becomes like a job. And for <laughs> me, when something becomes like a job, I am not interested in it at yeah. all. I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to do it. So for my writing process, normally is if something sparks uh, the urge for me to write, I, I have a big overstuffed chair in our family room. That's where I write. We have three cats and a dog. 
So usually I, I've got my computer in my lap. I've got a dog in my arm and I've got cats down by my feet and I have to have something. I have to have sound. I, I cannot write when it's quiet. And if it's music, it, music doesn't work for me for some reason. I just, if it's music, I want to listen to it. So I have to put the TV on. So I'll, I've written stuff to Columbo episodes, to Game of Thrones, <laughs> to, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And it usually has to be something that I've seen before, so I don't really have to pay attention to it. But I've got to have that sort mm-hmm. of stimulus in the background. Um, and and then I just go. And I normally will write until I get something completely out. Um, not finished, but out because the finishing comes in the revision process. And that's something mm. that I do later. That's something where I consciously will take time, sit down, go back and work on it. But the, the first part of the process is get it all out when, when, when the mood strikes. And I've been fortunate since the pandemic, the mood has been striking a lot. And I've, <laughs> I've probably <laughs> written way more than I ever have um, since the pandemic began and and even after the pandemic um, that that's kind of stuck so I, I don't know what it is I don't know if it's maybe I'm getting older and I feel like time's running out I got as much out as I can or what but something's happening where I, I, I write a lot now well whatever it is bottle it up and send my way because I need that I need that <laughs> I wish I wish I could figure out what it was so I could do that that's great, though. Um, you know, you've talked a little bit already. Well, actually, let me ask, let me ask this before I ask the next question. Did you, did you, I, I love the idea of actually asking poets to review their own books. Did you have anyone that just went just full Walt, Walt Whitman and just, just really went and was exuberantly praising their work? Uh, no, we didn't. Non-tongue-in-cheek? Didn't. Yeah, no. Uh, Stafford's was completely tongue-in-cheek. Hilarious. It's it's so fun to read that that review. Uh, we did have a poet, though, who he didn't praise his stuff, but he didn't really talk about his stuff. He It was more like he was an, accepting the Academy Award. <laughs> so he was, he, was, he was thanking people, you know, and it, yeah. it, but we published it because that was our whole thing was we didn't want to tell poets how to do it. We wanted to see what they would do. Yeah, yeah. At warts and all, we would we would publish it. Um <laughs> and so that was, it's just really interesting to go back and look at the difference in the way poets, you know, some poets, they would approach it very technically where they would pick up some poems and they would kind of explicate them. Other poets would talk about the process of writing it. Uh, but yeah, that one, the one poet, and I'm not going to name who it was, <laughs> was, it was just like he had won the biggest award of all time. And he was, and he was at the podium thanking people. And I mean, it's, it was fun for us to read it. It, it. You know, was it really what we wanted? No, but we published it anyway, <laughs> sure. because that was what that, I think that revealed a lot about the poet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man. Well, that's, that's great. Um, so we've talked a little bit about Stafford. Um, what are some other, who are some of your other influences that have had a big um, impact on your writing? Um, Jane Kenyon, um, her, her writing influenced me really early because um, she, she had this poem and I think it was published in the Kenyon Review back in the eighties and it was called Twilight After Hang. And it's, uh, it's, it's probably one of her more well-known poems. 
but she had an image in there. It's, it's about this uh, group of farmers just doing uh, harvesting the hay in the fall. And she has an image of um, that's the, something like um, the men sit and smoke near the baler, the tips of their cigarettes blooming like small roses in the twilight. And that image of cigarette tips looking like small roses, it, and it, does, it still does it to me now. It gives me freeze-on. You know, it makes me, I, I get goosebumps. Um, and when I was just beginning to write and I, you know, to, to, you know, really think about poetry as a possibility, and I read that image and it gave me that reaction, that's when I thought, yeah, you know what? I want to be able to do that in my writing. I want, I want to make people feel the same way. So that one poem by her was really influential. Um, James Wright, hugely influential, but sort of in an odd way, because when I was, when I, I think it was in the second workshop that I took and I, and I was just trying to figure out things to write about. And I was writing a, a lot about my grandparents' farm, which was, you know, not too far from where James Wright lived. <clears throat> um, he grew up in Martins Ferry, Ohio, and wrote a lot about Martins Ferry, and that's sort of the industrial uh, rust belt, which some people say is a bad term to call <laughs> call this area, but that's what people there call it, the rust belt. Um, I was writing a lot of poems set in the, with the same sort of settings, and people in workshop kept saying, well, you're ripping off James Wright, and, I, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. I, I had never read James Wright. And but finally, one of them brought in the branch will not break and said, read this. And so I read it and I'm like, wow, uh, I, I am. <laughs> I am <laughs> but I started to read everything that he wrote. Um, and, and it really did influence me. And in fact, the first um, chat book I ever had published was with Bottom Dog Press. And they had a call out. They were putting together. Uh, four chapbooks in one book, and they all the chapbooks in the book had to be influenced or uh, be an homage to James Wright's poetry. Oh my um, goodness! Like, wow! Uh, so I submitted a um, manuscript, and the editor rejected it. He wrote back, and he's like, "These are really good, but they're very dark." He's like, "Let a little light into your poetry." So I revised it, sent it back to him, and he took it. And um, I think I was. 26 or 27 at the time. And so the book was released at the James Wright Poetry Festival. They they just started it up again. It, it, it hadn't happened, I think, for about 10 years, but it was every year. It was a really big literary festival in Martins Ferry, Ohio. And so our release was at the James Wright Festival. And the two guest poets that year um, were... Robert Bly and Galway Cannell. <laughs> oh my goodness. So uh, we, they, Cannell and, and Bly did a reading of Wright's poetry in, in uh, I think it was on the first or second afternoon of the, of the festival. And then our reading followed theirs. And uh, it was terrifying, you know, it's like, how the heck do you follow, <laughs> you know, Bly and Cannell? So, um, we all got up and we read and Canel was sort of wandering around the room, not paying attention. And Bly actually sat down and he was listening to us read. 
And uh, so then Pinnell left before I I was the last to read. And um, and then Bly, <clears throat> um, when I was reading, I just kind of laser focused on Bly. And he had a copy of the book. He was reading along. And so I finished, then he got up and left. Well, that night, Bly was the featured reader reading his own stuff. And he was doing a book signing afterwards. And so I went up in line and I had a copy of his book and I handed it to him to sign. And um, he didn't even look up. He just, he just, he was drawing, he was doodling on the, on the book. And he's like, um, like, I really enjoyed your poetry, young man. And, and I'm like, oh, thank you, Mr. Bly. And, and he's like, here's a little drawing. I, I illustrated this one poem that you read and and he did he illustrated he wrote did a little illustration for this poem that I had read and and so he handed me back the book and I went to shake his hand and he's like no that that won't do it and he stood up and blo- I'm I'm 6'4 and um so I'm 6'4 you know about 260 and Bly is about the same size or was about the same size and I hadn't quite realized how big he was. And he stood up and he just came around the table and he just gave me this big bear hug. Oh my goodness. Um, and, and he said, and he said a little piece of advice. He's like, James's ghost is too much in your poetry. And then he, he oh, walked wow. away. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that man. made me start looking in other directions, but I kept gravitating towards poets who were influenced by James yeah. Wright. Uh, Jane Hirschfield, I love her stuff, and she she really, she loves James Wright's poetry. Um, there's a, there was a Greek poet, Giannis Ritsos, really like his stuff. He's kind of a surrealist Greek poet. Um, he died, I think, in the 70s. Um, Lucille Clifton, um, I, I love her stuff. I love what she does with her stuff. It's so compact and powerful. And I, I got to meet her too when I was up in, I've, I've been hugely, hugely fortunate. Man, um, that's amazing. With the writers I've gotten to work with, because when I was at, when I was an undergrad at Ohio State, Ohio State had just some rich donor had died and he left a huge endowment to the English department. So Ohio State was bringing in all of these huge writers. I, I'm, uh, Mary Oliver, um, William Stafford, Mark Strand, Cheswell Miłosz. Uh, I mean, it was just like one after another. They came in, and so I got to work with them for you know any from from you know a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And then when I went up to Alaska, we had um, the the Midnight Sun Writers Conference up in Alaska, and they were always able to bring in really big writers because who wouldn't want to go up to Alaska? You exactly. Know? Uh, and so the first year I was up there, Lucille Clifton was there. And what was so odd about that was Lucille had just come from the James Wright Festival, and she had a copy of the book that I was in with my oh book. Oh, my goodness. And she had no idea I was up there. And she was carrying it around with her because she was reading it. And and so I went and introduced myself. And she's like, oh, my God. She's like, I just read your poetry. <laughs> I'm like to be able wow. to say Lucio Clifton read your poetry. That's pretty amazing. I, I, yeah, it's, it was great. But so she I, and I had always been a big fan of her. Where I just I just love what Lucille does, and I'm glad she's really. I mean, she she got a lot of attention when she was alive, but she seems to be getting a lot more attention now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I, I'm 
I'm so happy that's happening because she deserves to be read by a lot of people. She's just fantastic. Um, the poet I, um, she came into Oklahoma State the last year I was there, and uh, her her uh, dramatic monologues and uh, persona poems, really fantastic stuff. Um, so I, she, her stuff was a real influence on me, too, for some of the longer things that I've done, and especially in the way that I organized my books as kind of narratives. I took a, mm-hmm. a page out of her book and doing that. That's amazing, man. Well, you've you've just named so many of my own influences, which makes it makes a makes sense why I enjoy your poetry so much. Um, like Jane, I said, I I was in the right place at the right time on two different occasions, and I have been just so fortunate that I got to meet those people and work with them. It, it, it's, I mean, it's been incredible. It's amazing. You know, just just curious before before I, we get into your own poetry and your own book. Um, you mentioned Jane Kenyon right off the bat. Have you happened to read The Making of a Poet by Dana Green that just came out? No, no. I, I just finished it. It's it's a great, great book that just came out the last couple of months because um, uh, basically she she adds some complexity to the relationship between her and Donald Hall, which um, because Hall was m- the main interpreter of their relationship and even how private she was personally. There's adds an interesting narrative to, uh, again, the making of, of Jane Kenyon. So, um, but yeah, Hall, uh, Donald Hall and I, we corresponded, um, for about a year. Um, that when I started sending out stuff, I didn't realize that, you know, I shouldn't be sending to certain places. <laughs> I would just send stuff out. And, uh, and so um, I sent things to, um, <laughs> I noticed that this magazine that my mom got called Country Journal published poetry. And they would publish one poem and it would always be at the very back of the issue uh, and, you know, sort of in with the ads. But they were publishing, you know, like Jane, with Jane Kenyon and, and, I mean, just huge people. They were publishing these really big people. I'm like, why, why are these really big people publishing in country journal. And, and so I just said, well, I'm going to send some poems to country journal. And I didn't know who the poetry editor was. Donald Hall was the poetry. <laughs> editor. And so I, I sent these poems and I, you know, like a month goes by and I get this letter back and it's from Donald Hall. And oh he's goodness. like, I've, He's like, I've never done this before, but he's like, I always solicit people for the poems. So that's why all these big people, you know, he's publishing all his big poet friends. He's like, but I really like this poem and I want to publish it. And I'm like, great. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, And then, so we started up a correspondence and that was, um, that was at a time when he was dealing, I think he had liver cancer Mm. and he he thought he was going to die. Um, and he, he, I, I still have the letters. Um, just, he was sort of reflecting on, you know, well, I, you know, what's Jane going to do when I'm gone? Wow. Then he ends up surviving and then Jane ends up dying. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, yeah. I mean, those letters, I really cherish them. They're three or four letters over the course of a year. Um, wow. But he was, also, he gave me some just really good advice about 
who to read and kinds of things to do in my poetry. And he, again, he, he was one of the people too who mentioned James Wright. I couldn't ever get away from James. I can't get away from James Wright. I mean, I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, being an Ohio writer, it's, you're just, you're influenced by him in some way, either directly or indirectly. James Wright is, is in every Ohio poet's writing, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's so cool. Uh, you know, let's, let's talk about your, your latest chat book, which I have right here. Um, the Misanthrope in Moonlight by Bottle Cat <laughs> Press. Um, yes. Tell me a little bit about this latest chat book. Um, yeah, this was, uh, I think, again, coming out of the, the pandemic and the isolation that a lot of us had to contend with was, was something new. And so I just started thinking about um, you know, what if there's a character who is just like, I really like that isolation. <laughs> I don't really like people much. And I love the, you know, the fact that this, uh, was kind of imposed on everybody else. It's not an imposition on the character. Um, it's something that, that the character really embraced. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of what got into my head was what if there's somebody who really, you know, a misanthrope must have loved the pandemic <laughs> and must have been like the best thing for them. So I just started to think about, you know, if a misanthrope was going to write poetry as a result of the pandemic, what would those poems be like? And that's that's sort of what uh, what this book grew from that idea. And I, again, I, I'll, I pull things from from my own life, but there's no no one poem in here that's purely autobiographical. I just I don't I love confessional writers. Robert Lowell um, is one of my favorite writers. Um, so don't get me wrong, I love that. And when people talk about navel gazing, I'm like, what the hell's wrong with navel gazing? I mean, some of the best poetry <laughs> in the English language is navel gazing poetry. Um, but uh, for me to write that way, I. I, I didn't start out writing that way because I didn't really, I wrote more about the stories I heard from my grandparents because I did I felt like I didn't really have anything. I was too young to really have lived enough to, you know, kind of navel gaze. So when I started writing poetry, I, I wrote about other people to begin with. And that's just kind of stuck with how I craft uh, uh, a speaker of a poem. It's, it's, I wouldn't say never completely autobiographical, but uh, I mean, probably the most autobiographical poem I've written might be 90% autobiographical, sure, sure. 10% in there that's not. But for this, um, I, I'll pull elements of sort of the, some of the things that I was thinking and feeling during the pandemic and then filter them through this character. Um, and the the poem that ends the book is the, uh, uh, that was, that wasn't the original ending of the book. And that's the newest poem in the book. And I just felt like I, when I was putting the book together, uh, I was thinking back to my first chat book and what that editor said, let some light in. And mm. I thought, okay, I want to have an, I, I think I need to have an ending that's not completely dark, but I don't want it to be a happy ending. I don't want it to be, yeah. um, you know, com- you know, your light. Um, you want it to be true to, to everything that's come before. Right, right. And and so I thought, okay, well, here's, um, if this character was told to write a happy poem, what would that be? And 
Um, I was watching um, the show Somebody Somewhere on HBO. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you haven't seen it, you should no, watch haven't. it. It's, a, it's fantastic. It's a it's a half hour long sitcom. And they, I think they've got two seasons of it now, and it's about this. It's it's set in rural Kansas, uh, Manhattan, Kansas, and it's about um, these two people who just become friends. And one one of the the, the main character of it, um, she's pretty much a misanthrope. She just uh, she's dealing with the loss of her sister and she doesn't really like people, but she becomes friends with um, this other character who's kind of uh, lonely in town, um, a gay man. So she's a, she's a straight woman. He's a gay man. And they just um, form this really powerful friendship. And it's probably the most authentically written, authentically acted show I've ever seen. And it really just, pulled me in from the first minute I saw it, it just pulled me in. So I wrote a poem and dedicated it to the two characters in that show. Um, mm. Cause that there it's a real, it's a very honest portrayal of friendship, I think. And, you know, it's friendships are not um, all sunshine and roses. Yep. Uh, there are rough patches and there a lot of times it's sadness that can bring two friends together. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to communicate. So I, when I wrote that poem, I thought there, that's it. That's, that's the poem that, that this person would end the book with, I think. Mm, I love that. Would you mind reading that poem for us? Somebody somewhere. Okay. Here it is. And I'm actually really proud of this poem. <clears throat> um, because it, to me, it, I mean, for me, I don't write a lot of real happy stuff anyway. Uh, but this this poem, I think, kind of captures um, for for me. Uh, um, it's it's. I felt like I was able to communicate the way that I feel happiness is, um, and it's just called somebody somewhere uh, named after the show. And by the way, I I. Uh, I sent this poem to the to the actor who plays Joel um, in the show uh, on um, Instagram. My wife, she got him to do um, uh, to record a birthday greeting for me because um, you can pay <laughs> these actors, you know, to yeah. do. And he did the sweetest thing, and it was like three minutes long, and he was really really nice and. Um, so I, I started following him on Instagram and I just went ahead and messaged him this poem and he wrote back and he's like, oh, it's like, I love that poem. So he was really nice. He responded to him. That was cool. It's called Somebody Somewhere for Sam and Joel. Someday when someone tells me out of the blue that they love me, somehow I'll stop myself from turning and walking away the way I sometimes do when love threatens to blow apart my heart with something too much for me to hold inside. Something like, but not exactly like, fullness. Something like an emptiness of emptiness. Something that I know we all deserve, but something that far too many of us fear. Something that somebody somewhere once told me was happiness. Mm. 
I love that poem, Kip. You know, there's, I'm, I'm real proud of this poem, actually. I think you should because there's <laughs> there's so many elements to love. I mean, you know, my reading, part of my reading of it is there's this there's sort of this this overwhelming emotion in it that you know when love threatens to blow my heart my heart apart with something too much for me to hold inside mm -hmm. and and it's 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 almost a grasping for something that all of us feel is so real yet it's hard to articulate it and and that so many people i think are afraid of i i think mm -hmm. a lot of people are afraid of the powerful emotions that that come with happiness um and you know trying to understand that and and allow yourself to feel it because i mean you know we we've all become cynical for good reason um and when you start to feel that way you begin to question okay well why you know and sometimes you just have to don't question it just let yourself feel it and even if it scares you um you know, just let yourself give yourself a break. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Let, let let yourself feel it. Absolutely, but I love the conflictedness in it because I think that's incredibly a relatable piece in here, right? Because of course, feeling love is what opens us up to pain, yeah, vulnerability. Yeah, you're taking a chance. I mean, that's that's the it's the vulnerability. You're exactly right, and. Um, and maybe that's something that's hardwired in us through evolution is that, you know, avoid being vulnerable at all costs um, yep, because you, you, you're opening yourself up to being hurt. But that's what's yeah. so great about that show is because that's what those two characters, they sort of, uh, as Sam in particular, the, the, the woman who has sort of misanthropic tendencies, that's what she's really afraid of. She's really afraid of opening mm -hmm. herself up and being hurt. And um, there are there are moments where she is hurt, but then she has to understand that that has more to do with her fears than what's actually happening to her. Um, and that's what's so honest about that show. It's just fantastic. And mm -hmm. I really thank them because it, I, I'm so happy with this poem. It's one, you know, people always say, well, what's your favorite poem? And that's hard to do. You know, I've, I've been writing for a long time and I've got thousands and thousands of pages of stuff. But if, you know, if somebody at least right now said, if you can only pick one poem to share with people, what would it be for me? It would probably be that poem. I love it. My favorite part is something like, but not exactly like fullness, something like an emptiness of emptiness. And again, there's that grasping, that searching, the inarticulate kind of ways of trying to find. And, and and it so goes along with the the title, which of course is title after show, but it's perfect. Somebody somewhere. And yeah, it, and that, that that's the thing is trying. I mean, the, you know, this character is afraid to come out and say definitively, I felt full of happiness. <laughs> So the only thing that they can do, and sorry, that's one of my cats coming up to say oh, hi. Fine. Um, you know, the only thing that that they can do is to is to say, well, you know, I'm not going to give I'm not going to give everything away. Yes, there is a fullness there, but what is it? Well, it's you know, 
it's an emptiness of emptiness. That's about as much as he's willing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that um, I was so thankful for, Kip, is when I was putting together my chapbook, A Funeral in the Wild, I reached out to you and said, hey, how should I organize this thing? And you were so helpful. Uh, yeah, with... I was going to ask you if you, uh, you know, because th that's the thing, knowing how to end a book, um, it's really hard. That that to me is the hard. You know, I, I I feel like I, you know for for stories and poems, I'm I'm pretty good at knowing when to end a story or knowing when to end a poem. But when you're starting to put a collection together, knowing where you know uh, what is the exact right note to end on, and um, I remember going through your 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 poems and um, the poem the cardinal to me just felt like. Everything that you were trying to do in that book is is in that poem. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like that was the place to end everything. Everything seems to be leading up. I mean, all the parts of that poem, they're kind of addressed in the book, but now they're all together in this one poem. So that I and and I'm glad to see that you and you took my advice and ended the, the book with that poem because it's a fantastic poem. Well, thank you, Would Kip. You read I mean, it? absolutely. I'd love to. This is called The Cardinal. I was too late. And at this point, I am unsure if this feathered foe is toying or avoiding. After being called over, I looked through the spattered window pane at the naked tree and then heard, How did you miss him again? Then I wonder, Does he prefer her? Or is it something with me? It's pathetic, isn't it? Writing to you, dearest reader, about this flushed, unacquainted squabbler. But my time will come. Not because he's approachable, that much is plain, but because I have nothing more pressing to do than to sit here, wait for him, and write to you. That's such a Stafford... Uh... But it just the echoes of Stafford in this poem I love because there are little things in there that Stafford really liked to do, like taking a moment to acknowledge the reader and then acknowledging the fact that he's writing. Um, that, that's what I, one of the things I love about Stafford's work. And, I, you know, so it doesn't surprise me that you talk about Stafford being a huge influence on you, um, was he, he was a very meta writer. In, mm. in a lot of ways, in all the best ways of being, you know, sometimes people are, you know, they're meta just for the sake of being meta. Stafford, yeah, was, sure. Stafford was like, you know what? And, and he, I think he talked about this, um, where when he wrote, sometimes he felt like he was writing and the reader was standing over his shoulder watching mm. him write and that it was a, it wasn't just, he was never just by himself. Um, and and then that doesn't mean that he was writing for a reader. It just means he understood that at some point this writing is going to be shared with somebody and mm -hmm. why not invite them in on the process? And that's what I love about this poem. It's just, it, to me, it strikes the perfect note at the end of your collection. Well, thank you. It, it means a lot that you took the time. And and it's funny, you, you're exactly right with trying to structure a collection and trying to find, of course, an opening poem is real so important. The ending poem, I mean, I, those two seem so important to set the tone. And but the end, it was it's after you suggested that I was like, oh, this makes total sense that I didn't see it before. But 
Sometimes we can't see it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I have to show my wife a lot of the stuff, especially when it gets to the point of putting collections together and I'll test things out on her. And I can just tell from her reaction when I kind of hit a false note. Um, and, and, you know, like if I get to the end of a book and, and I can just tell from her reaction, that's not the place to end. Then I have to go mm-hmm. back and think of it. Cause yeah, I mean, we get, we get so, wrapped up in it ourselves we get so deep into it it, it's hard to kind of see it clearly Mm -hmm. and you know for me when i put a book together i I have to just spread everything out i have to print it all out Mm. and i got to get it all on the floor and i have to stand over it and look at it and then then i start moving the pieces around yeah um because i i can't do it on a i can't do it on a computer um I, I I have to see it all. I have to see all of them at once laid out. And it's not even that I'm reading them all. I just have to see them all. Yeah, that makes <laughs> because sense. Even just the shape of, of the poems will tell you, at least tells me, yes. you know, sort of the emotions that are in that poem or the, the ideas that are there. And that help, kind of helps me move things around. But yeah, striking the right note to pull somebody in and striking the right note that people will take away with them. Those are the, those are the two biggest challenges of putting a book together. It is, but uh, you're, I highly recommend anybody who's listening to pick up Kip's latest chapbook, the misanthrope and moonlight It's by bottle cat press. Um, I love it. I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of to me and I, and I'm, this isn't hyperbole, where, you know, there's just some albums that you have that you can just listen all the way through. And that's just what I love about this chat book. I just feel like from start to finish, there doesn't seem to be a bad poem in there. And so no. it's it's a great, Thank great you. chat book. And I highly recommend it. Where can we get this chat book? Um, you can you can go straight to Bottle Cap's website and get it there. You can go to uh, my website, um, www.kipnot.com. Um and there's a link there that will take you to bottle cap, but you can also um, order it straight from me um, to get a signed copy if you want. Um, so yeah, those are the two places where you can, you can get it. Um, and bottle cap, they did, I mean, great. They do such great work. It looks so good. I'm just really happy with the way it looks. And I love chapbooks. Chapbooks are, <laughs> I think more than full length books. I love chapbooks because you, you can do that. You can, it's something that you can read in one sitting, or at least you should mm-hmm. be able to when you do it right. Um, and it, it, I just, I love the compactness of it. I love that, you know, you pretty much in a chapbook, you're just lasering in on a a particular theme or subject, um, that I, I love. I, if I could only write chapbooks, that's what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think I would just echo everybody to go to Kip's website, um and and also you're on instagram twitter right yes instagram and twitter and um oh, what's the uh the, the newest one threads threads, threads. yes yeah, i'm on thread <laughs> okay yes <laughs> yeah so but check- mostly instagram i i do I, I probably do instagram more than anything else that's good to and know. you can see cute pictures of my pets on there too so uh, add a bonus add a bonus yeah that's right yeah well kip thanks so much this has been so fun and really appreciate you coming on well, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Like I said, a chance to talk about poetry because I, you know, I'm not in workshops anymore. I don't even teach poetry anymore. I teach primarily composition online. So mm-hmm. I don't have a chance to talk 
Well, pretty much at all. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Kim. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Eastridge Review's Poetry Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Eastridge Review, check out our website at eastridgereview.com. Also, make sure and grab a copy of Kip's latest chapbook by Bottle Cap Press on his website or on Bottle Cap Press's website. And if you'd like to pick up a copy of my latest chapbook, A Funeral in the Wild, that is available from Amazon and Kelsey Books. Thanks so much for listening and look forward to our next episode.